0: Welcome to the podcast, episode thirty. Good to have you with, uh, good to have you with me here as you accompany me through these podcasts. It's wonderful. I appreciate your steadiness. I, pre- I appreciate the fact that you have not turned back. Here we are, thirty episodes in. So i want I, I wanted this uh, episode to talk about the Nunez uh, memo. Uh, Devin Nunez is a, is a um, a congressman uh, chairman of the House Intelligence Committee and um, as at the time of this recording there is a big hubbub going over the memo that he uh, and others on that committee drafted and and uh, they um, went through a process to have the information declassified and then released to the public and it's just a four-page memo memo but it basically shows all kinds of um, reveals all kinds of dirty deeds in the uh, uh, last presidential election. And uh, those dirty deeds basically amount to the weaponization or the um, politicizing of our intelligence agencies. So the Justice Department and the FBI were involved in uh, circulating u- using... Um, using their intelligence capacity to uh, spy on a political campaign for political purposes, for the political, with a political end in view, which is a monumental corruption, uh, uh, foundational corruption. And all the indications are that what we have seen thus far is just the beginning of um, uh, what's going to come out. There's going to be a lot more coming out. And um, and I'd like to make a point about this. Of course, the point is not to defend any of the, the bad things that have been revealed, the dirty deeds that have been uh, revealed, but rather to maybe reframe or recast uh, what we're up against. Um, one of the phrases that has caught on uh, in, the, um, uh, in, the, in recent months, within the last year, is the phrase, the deep state. And I would like to, um, uh, I guess, admonish or urge people who use the phrase "the deep state" to be aware of what they're saying, and to be careful about it, um, because the phrase "deep," the phrase "deep state," um, is evocative of conspiracies, backroom deals, um, uh, cloak and dagger stuff. The deep state, the deep state, is. Um, Maybe not. You're you're not quite at the level of blaming everything on the Illuminati, but you're you're getting there. The deep state can make you think in those grooves, and and I'm not sure that we ought to be thinking in those grooves at all. Um, uh, one writer at um, at Powerline blog uh, said, and I think this is a, a very good observation. He he preferred that. He preferred the descriptor, the administrative state. We have our elected official, uh, elected officials, and then we have our permanent officials, our career uh, bureaucrats. The administrative state, basically, um, if, uh, a number of years ago, I read a uh, a book that I would um, I'll take a moment to commend to you is is administrative law unlawful by Philip Hamburger, and. The answer that he comes up with is, yes, administrative law is unlawful. And, and he goes on to show that our American War for Independence and the Constitution that we adopted was specifically designed to exclude administrative law. It was, um, it was designed to exclude the royal prerogative. And what we've had with the growth of big government and the growth of the administrative state is a gradual uh, uh, our gradual encroachments on our liberty but this is not because um, there are people in back rooms with cloaks and eye patches uh, conniving or plotting or conspiring to take away our liberty. One of the most striking things about this uh, controversy about the FBI and the Department of Justice is that, all the dirty deeds that have been un- been uncovered are there in the records. In other, in other words, these things were um, minuted. These things were confirmed in memos and emails, and uh, and all of the records are there. So so consequently, when if someone fights through the the tangled. Um, undergrowth of the bureaucratic resistance, he's going to find file cabinets full of evidence. This is not um, the kind of wickedness that does what it does in the dark and leaves no fingerprints. This is something that fingerprints absolutely everything, keeps a record of absolutely everything, and then guards those uh, file cabinets full of those... um, um, memos and letters that would condemn them. It guards them ferociously. So what, what we are dealing with is a bureaucratic engine. We are we are dealing with people who believed that they were above the law, who believed that they would never be found out, who believed that the uh, investigations would never come their direction. They, th- they felt very confident part of this confidence had to do with their confidence that Hillary was going to win the election, and of course if if Hillary had won the election, then she would have been in a position to retaliate against anybody who tried to uncover or expose what had happened so uh, in in this conflict, we are dealing with uh, it's like watching slow motion suma wrestlers. So um it's it's not like it's not like watching jujitsu fighters or knife fighters who are quicker than lightning. It's it's like watching someone unfold a surprise attack that takes three weeks to unfold. Or and and then uh this memo drops and then this person does that and then there's an action to try to stop it and the whole thing unfolds very slowly and gradually but that doesn't that doesn't prevent at the end of the day the controversy from when 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 you finally get to the point where the explosion has to happen the explosion happens up and up until that point i'm i know i'm mixing my metaphors but just imagine slow motion sumo wrestlers finally exploding and uh when when that happens that's the kind of thing uh that uh, what I think is where we're headed for now. So I think we uh, owe a great deal to um, Devin Nunez. I believe he is one courageous congressman. I believe that he's doing remarkable work. I think he's on, uh, very much on the side of the angels, and I'm grateful that, that as much has been revealed as has been revealed. But I think that a lot more is going to be revealed probably a good bit of it in slow motion. And at some point, we're going to get to the level where we say, you know, this is really, really, really bad. Um, I would argue that to use to use our intelligence agencies for partisan political purposes is just one step shy of using the military for the same thing. Um, it's it's not cricket. It's not a level playing field. It's not right. It's not good. It's just bad all the way down. There's no bedrock underneath this. This is dirt, all the way down. So here we are, episode thirty podcast, uh, podcast episode thirty, whichever way you want to say it. And um, the book I want to review uh, for this uh, episode is Reformation. Spirituality, Reformation Spirituality by uh, Gene Veith. Uh, Gene Veith is a Lutheran theologian and he is um, uh, a very sharp guy and he undertakes in this book, Reformation Spirituality, to, to analyze the theology that's underneath the poetry of George Herbert. Now George Herbert was a, uh, an Anglican clergyman. And, uh, and Herbert was very much uh, a Calvinist and very much an Anglican. So he was an enthusiastic proponent of the Elizabethan settlement. And, uh, and he was an ardent, devout Anglican. But he was very much a doctrinal Calvinist. And I need to, I need to back up and explain that uh, for a minute. Uh, in our day, uh, a, a Calvinist is someone who believes certain doctrines about soteriology, about the doctrine of salvation, God's sovereignty and salvation, uh, the depravity of man, uh, God's election, uh, electing grace, uh, the atonement of Christ that secured our salvation, uh, the, uh, the irresistible nature of grace, and so on. Um, now, when I say that George Herbert was a Calvinist, I'm using the word Calvinist in our modern understanding. In Herbert's Herbert's day, a Calvinist was probably, uh, if you said someone was a Calvinist, you were probably talking about their doctrine of the sacraments. So um, uh, it's possible that people back then, basically the the Church of England in the 39 Articles was uh, Calvinist in its soteriology, and Herbert was very much uh, a Calvinist in that in that sense. But he was also very much an Anglican in his view of the sacraments and church authority and and so on. Now, um, uh, Herbert is a soteriological Calvinist, and Gene Veith, a Lutheran theologian, Lutheran writer, and uh, and a convinced Lutheran, uh, does a remarkable job in this book because uh, he plainly, self-evidently understands Calvinist theology, the ins and outs of it, uh, and while not embracing it himself, treats it very sympathetically. So he is able to um, uh, deal with Herbert's Calvinism in a sympathetic way that doesn't patronize him, that doesn't pat him on the head, that doesn't um, uh, dis- and, and doesn't distort it in any way. Um, uh, Veith walks through um uh, herbert's poetry uh, analyzing a number of different poems showing uh, what's underneath it what's what lies behind it, what the assumptions are and um uh, and and in this I just think it's a uh, uh, first if you're interested in poetry if you're interested in world class poetry, if you're interested in the kind of poetry that calvinists uh, would produce, this is a book to To study, this is a book to uh, luxuriate in. This is a book to uh, really enjoy, and 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 it also serves as a model of charity. How to how to treat a theological perspective that is not your own in a way that people who do own it uh, think that you have been remarkably fair. This is just as. this is as even-handed as it gets. Uh, Gene Vith has just done a wonderful, uh, a wonderful job. He's got a, a poet's ear. He can he can hear what Herbert is up to. He knows what the doctrinal framework is that uh, produces the kind of uh, uh, this kind of poetry. in a man like Herbert, um, I just have to say, um, well done all around. So Reformation spiritual uh, Reformation spirituality by Gene Veith. So, one of the images that Scripture gives of a life of sin is that of fruitlessness, fruitlessness, as represented by the word akarpos, akarpos, the seed that is planted among the thorns, those thorns being the cares of this world, and the deceitfulness of riches. That seed is choked out and becomes unfruitful, Matthew 13:22. Jesus uses the same words in the record that Mark gives us of, of this same parable, and Mark Uh, 4.19. Paul says that if a man prays in a tongue without interpretation, then his understanding is unfruitful. Same word, 1 Corinthians Corinthians 14.14. Then in Ephesians uh, 5.11, Paul also tells us to have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. He wants believers to learn how to maintain their good works in order to to avoid being unfruitful, Titus 3.14. If believers grow in grace and holiness, then the result will be that they are not barren or unfruitful, there's that word again, in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus, 2 Peter 1.8. And then in Jude 12, the false teachers are described in many ways, but one of the central features of their lives is that they are without fruit. The same word a akarpos is used there. So this striking biblical image is a good example of sins of omission. Right? So it, uh, if you're an apple tree and you bear no apples, that's a sin. It's, um, it'd be a sin if, um, if an apple tree bore the wrong kind of fruit or poisonous fruit. Um, but it's also a sin when an apple tree bears no fruit so uh, it's a sin of omission these settings are not describing the presence of evil fruit but rather the absence of good fruit we are responsible uh, in short for what we do not grow we are responsible for what we do not grow because we have not um, um, paid the kind of attention that we ought to have to this sin of omission this uh, sin of fruitlessness we have left ourselves exposed to um, the appeal of one of the appeals of the sexual revolution. The sexual revolution is uh, entices us with the promise of lots of sexual pleasure, but no sexual fruit, and, because, and that's because, of course, sexual fruit um, would be children. Um, the sexual act causes children to be begotten. And when they are begotten, they start to grow. And if, they, if you want to do something about it, you have to kill them, uh, which is what the abortion controversy is all about. Or you can head it off uh, prior to that point by means of um, uh, organized fruitlessness uh, or, uh, arranged by uh, the contraceptive revolution. Or you can, you can get to the same result by um, uh, men turning to men their sexual pleasure and women turning to women because again that is a carpos that is fruitless um, so when when you hear the word fruitless you should think of um, something as vain or futile and that's what this is but but recognize the um, the genesis of that metaphor upstream there is no fruit hanging on those branches God in the time of the sickness. God in the doctor, too. You've spent a pleasant half hour with podcast proprietor Douglas Wilson. This podcast is produced by Canon Press. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite listening platform. To hear more from Doug, please visit canonpress.com.